my son is just terrified. He's 17. He's on the spectrum. He's an amazing kid. He's my world. I talk to him. He's terrified because he knows that I'm at the hospital with a heart attack and all the things that go with that. I've been in his position because when I was younger, my stepfather had a heart attack when I was 16 and my mother had had problems starting around this age as well. And so it was, I, I kind of knew where he was and there were a lot of tears and I really did. I mean, I, I was facing pretty risky stuff. They, they had told me that less than 50% of people survive from all the stuff that I was dealing with. And I basically said goodbye to him. Man. And, and looking back, I'm more than incredibly thankful it wasn't. One of the most powerful moments of my life was a couple days later when I got to go home and go knock on the door, wake him up and hug him. And I just broke at that point. Welcome to the award-winning Leadership in the Environment podcast. We guide you to living better by your values. We bring you relevant views on important topics without doom and gloom. We focus on awareness and action. It's about bringing fun, community, and connection to your everyday life. If you're new to the channel, please consider subscribing and turning on notifications. Let's do this. Do you have a friend or friends that you talk to something like once or twice a month, the type that you don't see every day in order that you can talk about important things beyond just the day-to-day up and downs? Well, Dan is one of those friends for me. Last week, he told me he had a massive heart attack. He's 46 years old. I was traveling and could only hear part of the story. What I heard made me reflect all week. The pains, the hospitals, the doctors, that was the exciting part, if that's the right word. But the parts about his son and his views on life, they got me in the gut. He's gone through life and death experiences before, so he could compare his reflections and the changes in his life from this time compared to past times. The part about the changes he's made since, mostly diet, made me think about my environmental changes and a lot of the changes that I talk about. So I asked him if he was willing to share his experiences with an audience challenging themselves to change, that is us. He said yes. So the first two thirds is what I found a gripping account of a young man facing possibly the end of his life. Then come the parts where he faces the rest of his life and especially his son. Here's Dan. Welcome to the Leadership in the Environment podcast. This is Joshua Spodak. I'm here with Dan McPherson. Dan, how are you doing? I am fantastic and grateful to be alive. How are you, Josh? I'm very good. And I know that there's more meaning to you being grateful to be alive than the average person when they say that. And because you had a heart attack recently, more than one, I think. Yes, I, I did. Uh, there's, there's some debate as to whether it was two or just one, but it was, it was certainly one and, and most, most would say two one really small one. And then if you can say such a thing, and then one much more significant. And we're going to keep the listeners holding on for a second. Uh, you're 46 years old now. Yes. And how old was your, your father? I think my mother, your mother, my mother passed away at 46, partially of heart issues. Okay. And, but I want to go back to how you and I met. I, was it through Dan? Yes, it was Dan Zaner. Yeah. Okay. So Dan Zaner put us in touch and people who were Big time readers of my blog will know that Dan Zaner wrote his reflections on doing the exercises in my book, Initiative. He contacted me and put me in touch with previous guest, Navy SEAL Larry Yatch, whom you also know. Yes. And so these are all these people that I've only met online, haven't met in person yet. But you and I have been talking, I don't know, twice a month for how long? A year or two? Probably a year, year and a half. Yeah. And it's been about building audiences online, podcasts, and digital marketing, things like that. A little bit about the environment too. A little bit. Oh yeah, that's on my side. (laughs) So last weekend, we were scheduled to talk on Friday. I was on my way up to Vermont to Joe DeSena's farm for the 
Spartan race, or it, he does the Spartan race. And so an event up there, I was in the car, we got on zoom. I said, there's crazy stuff going on. I can't talk this week, but just, you know, just like, let's connect. And he said, I bet my past week was more exciting than yours. And I was like, well, I swam across the Hudson River and I'm about to head up to Vermont and meet the Spartan up people. And then you told me that you had a heart attack and you gave me what the 10 minute version, half an hour version. Yeah. Probably about the 10 minute version. Yeah. And, and by the way, that's not a competition that I want to win in that way. <laughs> I would have been totally happy had your week been that much more exciting. I thought you were going to say, had your week been, had you had the heart attack? <laughs> no, not at all. I would have been very sad about that. Can you tell me, you've told the story many times, I'm sure. Yeah. So for me, I have, I guess it's worth starting. You mentioned my mother. I've dreaded this month for a long period of time. This is the month the actual honest to goodness month that I become older than my mother ever was. Mm. So as all of this happens, I'm within two weeks of the time when she passed away. So that adds just a a level of craziness to the whole thing and an additional level of fear through parts of it as well. But yeah, I, I woke up Monday morning and I decided I was going to go for a walk. And I, I had not gone for my walks for the last couple of weeks. So I decided I was going to go do that. I went downstairs to go, for, to go for my walk. I got to the mail. I felt pain in my chest and my arm. It seemed pretty serious. It was different than pain that I'd had before. I've had a number of different health issues, but nothing related to this. And so I went back upstairs and I sat down and I told my son, hey, there may be something going on. In like five minutes, it passed. So having some blood tests scheduled a couple days later, I thought, cool, I'm okay. I'll watch if it comes back. I'll go do something about it. And it didn't come back. So I went about my day. I look at that now and that's, that's what I mentioned that maybe the, the small heart attack, whether it was or whether it was just a warning, it was pretty serious. And I underestimated the seriousness, which is I think maybe lesson number one is that if you have a pain that is different than you've ever felt that matches every description of a heart attack, even if it goes away, probably worth telling somebody. Yeah. And this is in the midst of a pandemic. And so who knows what, there could be lots of things. Yeah, it could be, could be any number of things. I am grateful that I was okay. It gets a little bit crazier because the next morning, Tuesday morning, I decide, hey, cool, I'm feeling good. This is in my rear view mirror. So I go to a karate class outdoors in 90 degree heat on a hill and do the things that we're going to do, which is pretty active. And you've done karate for long time. Seven years now. Okay. Yeah. So that's not, it's not unusual. But yeah, my, my son and I do, we do karate, we do jujitsu. Martial arts is nothing new to me. And I was like, cool, let's, let's go do the thing. And I go do this class. In retrospect, I am told that it is a coin flip that I survived that class. 50-50. Yeah, I mean, exactly. And they said I easily could have died in that class. And we'll, we'll hear why in a, in a moment. But it's, I look back at that now and I'm just thinking, man, that is that is terrifying. Another reason to have that I should have made the phone call the day before. I have a long day that day. I work through my normal stuff and, it, and it's actually a pretty busy work day for me. And I'm up until maybe 3 a.m., which is not as common as it used to be. So the karate class went fine. Yeah, it went, fi- it went fine. Like I felt a little bit of discomfort, but nothing like, it was more like I was a little short of breath or like I was... I don't know, maybe uh, like I was sweating more than you normally would, but it was 90 degrees. So it was really, I was just, I kind of blew it off, right? Because it's, it's hot. I'm working out pretty good. Hard to, hard to really know. And I, I just went about the rest of my day. And that night, like I said, I was up really late and I went to sleep 
I set my alarm for later than I normally would because I said I, I need to get at least four hours of sleep, four or four and a half. Uh-huh. At about two and a half to three hours in, or I guess it was probably about, I guess it was about three and a half hours in, I woke up with excruciating pain, like nine or 10 on, on a pain scale. It was bad. And it was in my upper left chest. Mm-hmm. And when I say upper, th- this is where it differentiates for me. I've had like what I would have been concerned was heart pain in my past, where it would be like the middle left of my chest that maybe it was gastro stuff, maybe it was other things. This was different. This was what it had been Monday, but much worse. It was burning. It hurt. It was shooting pains down my left arm and numbness. And I wasn't really sure you could have pain and numbness at the same time. I promise you, you can. <laughs> <laughs> and I also was sweating a lot. And I, I just knew like, this is not good. So I stumbled out into the hallway. I tell my wife, Hey, look, this is not great. And she had just taken some medicine that it, that she takes to help her sleep. And so she was pretty out of it. I call the urgent care doctor, the urgent care doctor calls me back and says, what are you doing? You need to go to the hospital right now. And since this was like, I don't know, 20 minutes later and it hadn't gone away, I agreed and, and got myself to the hospital very quickly. And I'm super grateful to live. Would you drive there? I No, I called a friend because my wife couldn't drive because of the medicine in her system. It would, have been, it would have been probably worse than me driving at that point. So I called a friend. Very thankfully, he dropped everything. He's amazing. Uh, just shout out to Bill Smith for getting me there. It took him seven minutes to get to my house from the time I called him. And he had me to the hospital less than seven minutes later. So it was probably almost as fast or as fast as an ambulance would have been. Mm-hmm. And had he not answered, I was calling an ambulance for those listening who were thinking, why didn't you call an ambulance? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I got there and I'm very fortunate to live within just a few minutes of one of the best cardiac hospitals in the country. Thank you so much to the University of Michigan Hospital. They have, they have now officially saved the life of each person in my immediate family at least once from different things. Just crazy. You were saying something? I just said, Wow. Yeah, it's amazing. They uh, they saved my wife when she was giving birth to my son. They saved my son when he started having uh, having seizures, and uh, they and they saved me this week. So yay for us! Yeah. Plus, I've had some other encounters with them because, as it turns out, I'm that guy. The crazy things in the world, I I do seem to be a magnet for them. So they're at the hospital. They rush you in. Yep. So I walk into the hospital. I actually I actually like stumble in. They look at me. And I go by the go to the registration desk, look at it, and they look at me. They're like, "Tell us your name." As somebody else is shoving me into a wheelchair, putting up, making sure I have my mask on, and taking me immediately back. Mm-hmm. And if, if for any of you who have ever been to the ER and you look around and you see it totally full, you're like, "Man, what a wait!" Mm-mm. I was at the point where they, I, I saw a totally full ER, and they just took me right back. So I knew that there was something pretty real going on. In my head at this point, I'm still justifying. How did they know your situation? I, because I'd called that doctor. That doctor called ahead for me, apparently. Oh, okay. Uh-huh. And when I came in, and, and I mean, they probably looked at me, and I didn't look so great either. And they said, what's going on? I'm like, I'm having really serious chest pains. And they're like, cool, sit here. And I don't know that I made the choice to sit so much as they grabbed me and put me in the wheelchair. Uh-huh. <laughs> but it was, it was a good choice. And they take me immediately back. And the, as they do, they, the ER doctors come around. They say, what's going on? I start describing it to them. And somewhere in my head, and it, this is, 
I think this is important. Is this the thing that we do, right? Somewhere in my head, I thought when I got there, they would either be like, oh, you're kind of overblowing things. You should probably just go home and rest. Or that they would be like, hey, good thing you came in to get it checked out, but you're fine. None of that is what happened. Mm -hmm. Not even a little bit is that what happened. The more I just, the more I described, the more concerned they looked and the more things started coming out that they were testing. They started, they put IVs in and I I don't, I do not love needles. I don't know most people that do, but I I really not a big fan and I, I was hurting though. And then the first of a series of crazy things happens. They give me something very innocent, a nitro pill. Now, nitro is what they give a lot of people to reduce blood pressure, help make, help make your life better and your pain less if you're having a heart attack. It softens your, your veins, something like yeah, that? I, I guess. It is like the thing that almost immediately will impact you. Well, here's the thing. It immediately impacted me, not quite in the way they were hoping. For me, it took my blood pressure from in the 140s to the 60s in under three minutes. They gave it to me and my blood pressure completely crashed and was going lower. And one of those things where you think to TV shows that you've watched and you, you hear them saying, push those fluids all wide open. Uh-huh. <laughs> they got as much fluids as they could into me as fast as possible because as it turns out, I have a really strong reaction to nitro and it's not a good one. It's now listed on my allergy list. And at, from as much as I could tell, they basically saved my life because I was there. If I'd taken a nitro pill that someone had handed uh-huh. me, I probably wouldn't have been in a good place if I hadn't been there. Mm-hmm. So I look up, there's like six ER people down looking really concerned at me and uh, saying, stay with us. And I did, Oof. thankfully. Wow. Don't go to the light. Yeah, right. Exactly, man. And so we we got through that. And I, at that point, started to realize I might not be going home that day. And they came in and they looked at me and said, you're not going home today. And it connected with me finally that, hey, this is, this is the real deal. He, and he looked at me and said, do you realize like, you're having a heart attack? Like, you're not guessing. You weren't wrong. You're having a heart attack. Mm-hmm. And in my mind, I'm like, I'm 46. I'm not having a heart attack. I'm just having some chest pains. And he said, no, like, let's be really clear. Like you're having a heart attack. They did some tests. And one of the things I appreciate is that they do, they test for what are called troponin levels. And troponin, from what I'm told, I'm not a medical guy, but they are, they are this is an enzyme that comes out when things not good with your heart are going on. Mm-hmm. And this hospital, unlike many, uses the high sensitivity version of this particular test the regular version would not have picked up my variants. The high sensitivity did. And because of that, they kept me and did a bunch of other tests. And it's another thing that probably helped save my life because it didn't brush me off. They did an EKG and it looked a little off, but not too crazy. And they started asking more questions. I was still in pain, all of that. And the doctor comes in and he said, look, this is real and we we need to keep you. We need to do some testing. You need to call your family right now. And I called like to say goodbye just in case. I mean, that's how that's how I took it because it, I was in a bad place, but I'm sure it was from their I mean, they're so calm, right? Because this is what they're trained for. Mm-hmm. And I'm super grateful for them. But everything had been really scary up until this point. And I'd been alone in the hospital. I'd been alone doing this. And that's totally how I heard it, especially with the experiences I'd had in the past. They told me, Dan, you know, Dan, you're gonna have a heart catheter. We don't know if you're going to have to have heart surgery, like open heart surgery, but you're going to have a heart catheter. And the heart cath, for those who may not know, is where they nicely, and we'll talk more about it in a moment, but where they nicely take a wire and run it through your veins and into your heart and then 
put with a balloon on the end. And then uh, often we'll put stents like little springs in your arteries to open them up. That sounded pretty scary to me. And especially extra scary because I had seen one done when I was a kid that went horribly wrong, like screaming pain for hours at a time and the person that I'd seen. So now we're literally into the land of my nightmares. My mother Mm -hmm. passing away within two weeks, this heart cath that I have to go have, possible open heart surgery. These are things that I've literally had nightmares about. And I was was feeling afraid. I was feeling some other really positive stuff. And I'll talk about that in a moment. But they put another IV in. They said, we need, we need to have two IVs in you. We need to be able to give you more stuff. So they, I have one in my right arm. I have one in my, in my left, I guess, wrist, really, the, the top of my hand, which mm-hmm. was a, a little bit uncomfortable at the time. And they're giving me different medicine. They do, uh, they do echo tests where they, they come and push a sensor on your heart, which I'd had one before, and it had hurt a little because they press, they press all over your heart for a few minutes. Well, this time, the guy, I don't know if he's been working out extra or what, but he, <laughs> but, but if, if uh, he was pushing really hard, he's like, this is going to hurt a little bit. And a little bit was it's certainly an understatement. And for about 20 minutes, he's just like ramming this thing down on my chest enough to where I, I had like bruising. And I'm pretty sure if I were healthier, I might have I might have physically responded to that. But since I was too in such bad shape that I couldn't really move, I just lay there and let him do it and hope it would help. Thankfully, they got good results from that particular test. So my 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 wife and my son come in, and my my son is just terrified. He's 17. He's on the spectrum. He's an amazing kid. He's my world. And I talk to him. He's terrified because he knows that I'm at the hospital with a heart attack and all the things that go with that. I've been in his position because when I was younger, my stepfather had a heart attack when I was 16 and my mother had had problems starting around this age as well. And so it was, I kind of knew where he was and and there were a lot of tears and I really did. I mean, I I was facing pretty risky stuff. They they had told me that less than 50% of people survive from all the stuff that I was dealing with. And so I, I basically said goodbye to him. And, and, and looking back, I'm, more than incredibly thankful it wasn't. One of the most powerful moments of my life was a couple of days later when I got to go home and go knock on the door, wake him up and hug him. And I just broke at that point. And, and I'm just so thankful. But it, man, I, it, was, it was so hard uh, just hugging him and telling him how much I loved him and that I, that I would always love him. And, and it's just really, it was, a, it was a brutal moment. And they were only able to be there for like 25 minutes and they went on their way. And then I'm I'm being shipped down the hall to the in, in the hospital, and they were going to do the heart cath right away, but they discovered, as uh, as I had known, that I was allergic to aspirin, and I have a significant allergy allergy to aspirin, like anaphylactic allergy. My throat will close up, and as I as I told them this, they said, "Oh, that's okay. We can reverse that." Reverse an allergy. <laughs> I'm like, what? What are you talking about? And I, I, I didn't know if it was maybe you know, like I I just heard that wrong, and they said, "Oh, no, no, no. We have this thing that we do." <laughs> and it'll take about 10 hours. It requires one-on-one nursing care. And we desensitize you to it entirely because we really want to use aspirin through your procedure and you're going to take it, you're going to take it for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. I'm like, what do you mean? Like as of yesterday, aspirin would kill me. Like, and tomorrow it won't. And so I go to my room. I haven't had anything to eat or drink all day or the night before because they, they're trying to keep me off of fluids and food and everything else. Mm-hmm. They then say, well, we have to do this thing for like 10 hours for you. 
And in this 10 hours, a nurse has to stay with you. She's going to do stuff with you every 15 minutes, uh, mostly check vitals and stuff. But she also had to give me progressively more aspirin through the entire time. And I'm, of course, a little nervous about that since I had a really severe allergy to it. But they're, they're, they were super careful. They were incredible. They said, look, we're right here. The reason you have two IVs is so that we can do life-saving procedures if we need to right away. And that, <laughs> it was a little bit wild, honestly. Yeah. And they, they do this and it takes 10 hours. And by the end, they're giving me like a full dose of aspirin and I'm not having any seriously negative effects, like just a little tiny bit of discomfort. And they said, okay, we're, we're good. The doctor comes in and he said, you know, we, we wanted to wait a few more hours for the, for the heart cath, but you've become much more urgent. Your, your troponin levels are doubling every two hours. Your EKG has kind of went upside down and, and isn't showing right. So we're going to take you down right now. And, uh, that was a that was a breath intake moment, mm-hmm. and they they come they show me they take me down they show me all the papers and have me sign saying you know about all the things that can go wrong which is exactly what you want right before you go into the to the surgery that you're super terrified of like yeah they're like and and you know you have to sign here saying that you understand you could die and I'm like awesome fair enough here you go this is where I, I, I should say a, a couple of things were really true that, and this is, this is important to me. One, I had, I had posted that I was going into, going to the hospital and I just mostly posted because I had, I had a bunch of people that I knew would care personally. I was blown away by the response. I, I more than a thousand people reached out to me over these few days to offer support and try to help and just individually showing how much they cared. And it's, it's in these moments where I think we, re- we see who really connects with us. And it made a huge difference in my life because I felt so alone other than that, being in the hospital alone for these days, dealing with it. And the fact that my clients and my friends and a lot of people who I'm connected with around the world all reached out, it made a difference. And I share that because if you've got someone that is going through something just don't underestimate the value of reaching out sincerely. It made it made all the difference to me. It was it was huge. And in a moment where I felt incredibly alone, I felt like I had a lot of people in the world with me and it mattered. I also one of the things that I train is the idea that we there's an old statement that we don't rise to the level of our hopes, we fall to the level of our training. I think it's Archilochus that originally said it. And I, I make an adjustment to that. We don't rise to the level of our hopes, we fall to the level of our highest secured training. And over the last few years, I've had a couple of other crazy life-threatening incidents in my life. And and as I went through them, a lot of times I've defaulted into the perfectly understandable, very natural, woe is me, this is bad, how is this happening to me? And I, I was really happy that even in the midst of my greatest fear, and that's why I pause at this point in the story, because this, me being wheeled into surgery, this was the moment of my greatest fear. I was, I was pretty deep in fear. And still, what was the number one thing going through my head was that in our darkest hour, in our darkest day, 90% of the things in our life are good. And I just think that's so important that we recognize that it doesn't matter how bad things are in the moment, 90% of the things in our life are still good. And there's, of course, there's the, there's the corollary that 10% of life is what happens and 90% is how we respond. And I, I believe that passion as well. But I was actually just thinking of all the things that even in that very moment were good. Mm-hmm. And the other part that I was thinking in that moment was that all the other parts of my story have allowed me to help and to serve and to reach people that I otherwise wouldn't have been able to. And if going through this would allow me to reach even a few people 
that I wouldn't have been able to serve before and now allow me to be able to help them that it would be that it would be worth it. And those things really lifted me up and carried me through and even through and they they cut through the fear in a lot of ways. Now again, I I was afraid. I was hugely afraid, terrified, probably more than I have been in my life. But those things were there. And I've never really backed away from making hard decisions like signing that paper. They told me in the operating room, they're like, as we were getting ready for the operating room, they said, you can opt out. You can choose mm-hmm. to opt out of all of this and we'll just do the best to treat you otherwise. And I was like, no, I'm, you know, even if it's hard, I'm always going to do what's right. Mm-hmm. And I did. So then they went in and then my story, then my story gets even cooler. <laughs> so they, they have two ways that they can do a heart cath. They can go in through your arm basically through your wrist, through the vein there, or they can go in through your groin. And the first one, the wrist, heals much faster, tends to be a lot better if you're the patient. It's a little harder if you're the doctor. And uh, I was I was more concerned if, about the patient. And I was like, hey, is there any way we can go in through the wrist? Like, that sounds better. And so they, they said, sure. And so they go in through the wrist and they get it all wired in. And then my arm starts spasming. And so now they have to actually pull it out which doesn't sound fun to me. And even in my twilight, you're not fully under for this. You're in like this twilight space. I remember mm-hmm. it not being fun. Uh-huh. I definitely not recommended. So they pull it out and then they get to go in through the groin. So much like a buffet, I got both, <laughs> <laughs> which made my healing later on that much more fun. So they, they go in and now what is supposed to be a 40 minute procedure ends up being four and a half hours. And they go in and there are three veins or three arteries in the heart. And the one was totally clear. One was 60% blocked and they did what they call a flow test. And they said, it's fine. And it's not bad enough that we're going to do anything. So they didn't. I mean, 60% sounds like a lot to me, but medically it doesn't meet the threshold. So they didn't do anything. Mm -hmm. The other one was the concern. Apparently the plaque on the walls of my artery had actually ruptured which isn't something I think about or even all that much like to, it had ruptured. And think of it like a funnel, is that if the plaque at the top ruptures and then it just tumbles down, what does it do? It clogs the bottom of the funnel. My artery was 100% blocked. Remember that karate class? This is why it was a coin flip that I survived the karate class. Through that entire time, I had an artery that was 100% blocked. So they go in there and they actually put in three stents little little springs that they thread in there and then expand. And it's along the entire length of the artery that'll be there for the rest of my life and that opened it up. Do they clear out the plaque? My understanding is that based upon, <laughs> they, they clear out some. So I think that my understanding is that they go in and they do clear some, like, kind of like the loose detritus, they make sure it gets all out of there. Mm-hmm. And they do make sure that it opens and the way that the spring does it, again, not a medical professional. Any of you who are, who are listening could probably give me a thousand corrections to all of this, but is that it expands the artery and it, and it makes sure that you have plenty of space okay. and it should stay open for a very long period of time, knock on wood. So they do, they do that and they open up that artery and I have before and after pictures. When I had my brain injury a number of years ago, I I got to see before and after pictures of my brain. Seeing before and after pictures of my heart was equally freaky. When you look at the before picture, you you look at it and you're like, oh, okay, yeah, there's there's the arteries. You look at the after, you're like, wow, it went from a dirt road to a highway. And there are smaller arteries that didn't exist in the before picture that now show in the after picture. So that tells me how little flow I was getting Mm -hmm. to 
pretty key parts of my heart. And I don't know that there are non-key parts of your heart. But it, was, it, was, it was pretty crazy when I got to see that later on. And I, I have that. I have the video of my heart, Kath. I have not gone and looked at that yet. I haven't had the, the stomach to go, to go look through that quite yet. But I have the, uh, I have the pictures and he had, the doctor had later walked through them with me. So they pull everything out and then they tell me, Dan, you now have to lay still for several hours or you'll bleed out. They like, mm-hmm. don't move your leg or you'll bleed out. And even in the midst of my drug-induced haze here, I'm thinking, that sounds serious. I don't think I'll move my leg. Mm-hmm. I'd already laid there for about five, five and a half hours. And I thought, all right, here comes several more hours. And I laid there and I was, I was a little druggy. I was a little, I was a lot in pain at that point. And I began to heal. And the story really mostly moves forward from there. I went through the I went through the night. I began to get better. My numbers started to get better. They did have, because I hadn't eaten or drank, they did have another blood pressure crash with me as well, where they had to give me more fluids and look concerned again. Because as it turns out, when you have a lot of trauma to your body and you have no you have no fluids and you have nothing to eat and you have nothing for it to work on, that it gets a little cranky. And uh, they they got me better and I the next morning, this is the crazy part to me. The next morning, I went home. I, it was like noon the next day. So maybe six, 12, what, 15 hours later, 14 hours later. Like your wife drove you home? No, I called a friend. Okay. And he came and got me, a different friend this time. Thanks, Rick Coglin. And uh, they he drove and came and got me and took me home. And I go inside and I hug my son. And then I go collapse in the bed and begin the recovery, I start to start to really think, I mean, my stamina was zero. Like just the walking into my, walking up the stairs and into my room, I was like, okay, that was like five miles, right? Mm-hmm. And <laughs> I laid down and rested a lot. And for maybe the first time in my life, did all the things that the doctors talked about and suggested. And I have several medicines I have to take for the rest of my life. I've changed my diet really significantly since the day I went in the hospital. I've lost 13 pounds and have done that. And I think for me, I also did the, the evaluation that everyone does afterward, where you look and you say, all right, well, what in my life needs to change? And for the first time of me going through something really serious, the answer was about my mindset and my mission was that nothing needed to change, that I'm living and doing what I'm meant to do in the world. And I was really incredibly pleased with that because the other couple of times that I've, that I've done that evaluation, I, re- I had recognized I needed to love life more. I needed to live life differently. I needed to do something different. I needed to make a ch- big change. And now I needed to change my lifestyle, but not my mindset or my mission. So now I feel like we've gotten a cycle of now you're back at home as it was before you had that first experience, the first possible heart attack. Yeah. You've got a lot of, now you have a whole lot of instruction to how to change your lifestyle. And this to me is, is I, I'm listening to all of what you're saying, partly thinking of someone who's lived a certain way. Well, actually, how did you live before? What are the changes? What did you know beforehand? Because I'm thinking we're all getting instruction to change our behavior with respect to the pandemic, with respect to the right. environment and so forth. And most people are not changing. They know what to do. That's me. Uh, that matches. <laughs> Yeah, describe, how were you about changing before? Were you doing, I mean, you had, it sounds like a genetic predisposition, but did you also have behavioral predisposition? If so, I did. And did you act on it? If, if so, why not? Or? I think both are really important, right? So I, I knew that my mother had had these issues and I knew that she had passed away at 46. She was the closest person to me. I was intimately close to her. I knew that was true. And I dreaded this particular month. And yet in my mind, I was like, yeah, 
I may have some stuff coming from her, but even in my doctor's appointments, when they'd ask me for family history, I'd kind of like blow it off a little bit or I'd be like, well, yeah, that, but I'm 46. Like it's going to be a long time later, not connecting the dots fully in my head that, oh wait, it's the exact same age. Of course it might be now. And so I, I really totally blew it off beforehand, the genetic part. And then as everybody who, who knows me, who listens to this will know, I ate as bad as you could possibly eat in terms of my food choices. And I'd been told for years, like I'd been told for the last couple of years, Hey, you've got some high cholesterol. And I'm like, sure, I'm going to make changes, you know, kind of like, kind of like, yeah, sure. I'll go to bed, mom. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> like I'd, I'd known that I needed to make some changes, but my ultra high fat diet said that I didn't said that I didn't listen to that at all. And I was high fat, high sodium, high, all the, all the things that, the cardiac diet, which I have learned a huge amount about in the last few weeks, would tell you not to do are the things that I went out and did. And just to put a couple of numbers to it that are that I'm not happy with, but they're real, is that I would eat anywhere between four four to eight thousand calories a day. And I'm active, but I'm not that active. Mm-hmm. The cardiac diet asks you to be under two thousand milligrams of salt. And as it turns out, I had a love affair with salt and I had to break up with her because I was eating six to eight thousand milligrams of salt a day. And the average US person, depending on where you look, eats between thirty four hundred and forty four hundred. So I was eating well more than average. I was having that. And same thing for you look at like milligrams of good grief of, of like saturated fats and things like that. I was not looking. I'm I'm a barbecue Chinese food, eat all you want to eat, processed food guy, or at least up until a few weeks ago, I was. I'll still eat some of that, but now in a very, very different way. And I've had to drastically change my lifestyle to reflect that as this became incredibly real, incredibly fast. Looking back, would you have done things differently if you had known? If I had, I think that's a tough question, right? Because in a sense, what we've already said is I kind of knew. And so in that sense, I, in that sense, I guess I have to say no. But in the sense of if I'd known for a fact that if you don't do this at 46, you're going to have a heart attack and it's going to be some of the worst pain you've ever felt in your life and it'll change your life forever. And you can make a small change now and it'll completely prevent that then yes, I would have made that change. But that's a lot of ifs and buts and candy and nuts that, that get in the way that, that we psychologically convince ourselves of so many things. And we wait until the worst or the next word. I mean, the worst that could have happened would be I wouldn't be here talking with you right now. And I'm, I'm incredibly grateful. I live in immense gratitude through all of this. But we wait until something happens that says, hey, this means you, buddy. It's not like this is, we, we hear this advice that other people give us and we're like, I think back to when I started my business. When I started my business, everybody said, Dan, you have to know who you, you have to know who you serve. You have to, if you're going to reach out for clients, you have to know who it is that you serve. And I was like, yeah, you do, but I can help everybody. Mm-hmm. If I try and help everybody, I help nobody. Well, this is a little bit like that. I, I heard that advice and I'm like, cool, that's good for everybody. But you know, I'm different. And as it turns out, not so much really. Is there anything, if you could go back in time now, if you yourself, you, this you could go back in time, say to you five years, 10 years ago, and you could say, look, I am you from the future. I know exactly what happens. Could you have changed the you then? What would you say? Five years ago, I might've been able to. 10 years ago, I was way too arrogant to even listen to myself, much less someone else. I think if I were to go back, I would say, hey, your mom passed at 46. And 
if you live like she did, you're going to die at 46. And you are 100% in control of you and you have the power to change that. And no one else can. And, and the cool part is if you change it now, five or 10 years ahead of time, you have to make really small, simple changes. That's one of the things I like about what you do, Josh, is that you talk to people about these, these small changes that make huge impacts in, the, in life, in the world, et cetera. And, it's, and it may be doing it in a big way, but it's, it's not complicated. And I, I think that's what I would have said. Now, I got to tell you, going through it, it feels pretty overwhelming. And I've dealt with that overwhelm in the last couple of weeks. Thankfully, I teach people how to deal with overwhelm. So I was able to employ my own strategies. But if I'd done it five or seven years ago, it would have been simple. It would have been one or two little tweaks, like change your life by 5%, Dan. Do that and you will. And I'm a power of small numbers guy. I'm a, I'm a big fan of doing little things over a period of time that make a difference. And I, I think I may have listened to it if I heard it in that way. And that's not how that's not how people present it to you. They're like, change your lifestyle, do this thing, and you'll save your life, which is great. And it sounds fun and dramatic, but it doesn't connect it in a way where the power of small numbers will save your life, where this really small change will mean you don't have to make really big changes later, assuming, by the way, that you survive. Are the small changes you would have done then a bunch of little small changes that accumulated? Or do you mean only one small change? Because it sounds like you have a lot of changes now. Yeah, I have a lot of changes now, but uh, but some of these wouldn't have been necessary had I made a couple of, I, I would say it's in the middle. I'd say it's two or three small changes then. Like, hey, Dan, how about you actually pay attention to the fat you're having? Don't not eat the stuff, but how about you eat like of the bad stuff? How about you eat maybe half as much, right? Like it doesn't have to be don't eat any of it. It is, it's, it doesn't have to be that if you're doing it ahead of time. But when you when you're doing it afterward, it's guess what? You're going to watch this like a hawk and you're going to be pretty, you're going to become pretty obsessed with this number. And I may like numbers, but I, I don't like the ones that restrict everything that I want to do. And you know, all my questions are partly about environmental behavior too, right? Always. And now some people have second heart attacks, which tells me that some people get the advice that you got and don't follow it and just say, ah, whatever, I'll just keep eating what I was eating. Here's an interesting note to that. This morning I had my follow-up with my cardiologist which is not something I ever thought I'd be saying at 46, by the way. Mm-hmm. And we were talking about diet. And I was proposing a, based upon the feedback that I'd, that I'd gotten from them, based upon the research that I'd done, I was proposing a plan that I said to her, I said, look, I recognize very clearly that this isn't a diet. This isn't a short-term thing. This is a lifetime. This is forever. And so I need to put something in place that is realistic and attainable, but gets to all the goals that are laid out by this. And she said, you know, that's right, because almost nobody that comes in to see me has been able to maintain the diet exactly the way that we tell them to. And they, they'll call me three months later and say how they broke. And she said it was, it was very low long-term adherence to the plan, having had a heart attack. So what do you think will happen to you in three months? I'll be fine because I'm looking forward, recognizing how I work. And I think that's part, that's what I find is that in most people, the the way that they respond to crisis is they do exactly what society does. They go from one extreme, I'll eat everything I want forever. Just using diet as the example. And I think the environment is a good example here too. But using diet as an example, they go from I'll eat whatever I want, however much I want, whatever, to 
I can eat nothing. I will have nothing ever and I will never have any form of a relief valve and I'm just going to have a sad, sorry existence. And eventually that wears on them and they break and then like the dam opens and they just fall completely off the wagon, right? And I'm setting myself up to be very different than that. And that's what I talked to the doctor about, about being realistic. I said, look, I asked her, I'll give you an example. I said, look, if I, if I follow this really closely for six out of seven days, and on the seventh day, I have one meal that lets me eat the thing I want to eat, not in a crazy, insane amount, but that I can really have a real legitimate meal that is the thing that I crave or that I love or that I really want. She's like, I, I said, how is that? She's like, that's fantastic. That is infinitely higher adherence than almost everyone else gets. And I said, well, what if I have, you know, once every month or two, I have a day that's pretty, that's pretty crazy, like closer to where I was before, but it's only one and everything else is fine. And she said, well, that, that actually makes sense. And I know that if I do something like that, now I'm, if you average out the numbers, because I, because when I try to be below a number, I'll actually be a little bit below it. If you average them out, I will on average across all of that time, be below every number that they want me to have, but I'm still living a life that, that I'm able to live and enjoy the things that are important to me without feeling like I'm in this crazy spot, but just being responsible. And long-term responsibility is a lot easier than long-term restriction. What are the things that are important to you that you want to make sure you get in there? Is it like a slice of pizza sometimes? or I'm, I'm a food guy, man. I'm a, I'm a selfish food guy, right? And I, I, yes, I like, I certainly like pizza, although I've found some ways to even within the diet to get a piece in there, just not a, not a lot. Like I can have one or two pieces in some, in certain cases, but like I, I, my favorite foods are barbecue and Chinese, which are all, and fried chicken, all of which are high fat, high sodium, high everything that with the cardiac diet would be not all about, right? High sugar. They're all of those things. And this would allow me to occasionally go and have a realistic meal at a Chinese restaurant or at a, at a barbecue restaurant without breaking the bank. But let me, let me come in under every single number across the board. And that may not be the single best way to do it, but it was the way knowing how I work that I knew I could grab to that would let me do it forever. That would let me do that thing and know that I would never violate the larger principles. Do you think that it may be possible that after you do it for a while, that you will lose the taste for those things? It is. And here, so here's an interesting thing. For the first 13 days out of the surgery, I didn't go over 2000 sodium. I didn't go over the fat. I, didn't, I did nothing outside of it at all. On day 14, I went to go get something that I would have loved before. And I still liked it, but it tasted a little bit off. So my guess is, that after I do this for months, that there are things that I will develop the taste for that things will seem too salty, things will seem too sugary, things will seem too whatever. And what's interesting is that it's, it's not even about having the meal. It's about knowing that you can have the meal. Like that you can make, you can make that choice for, for me in this case. And I suspect as we get six, eight months from now that I may, I may actually not, right? There, there may be multiple weeks that go by where I don't do it at all. But now it's a choice rather than a restriction. It's, oh, that just doesn't sound good. I don't need to go do that. Yeah, I'd made a lot of changes in my diet when something prompted me to try that salt apparently you lose the taste for, you regain sensitivity for yeah. after a month. 
And I remember when I was a kid, we would get salt, light, so-called lightly salted butter. And one day my parents decided to, my mom and stepfather decided to switch to unsalted butter. So suddenly the, there's no flavor in the butter anymore. Right. And, but whatever, we were stuck with what we had. And sometime a long time after that, I tried some lightly salted butter and found it disgustingly overly salted. It wasn't lightly salted at all. It was heavily salted. Yeah. So I had had that experience in my life. Even so, I thought, I'm eating pretty healthy. Salt, I understood that salt wasn't really that bad for you. And I figured that's plausible because, I don't know, you go swimming in the ocean. Sure. Probably most humans have lived somewhat near to oceans. We must have gotten a fair amount of salt somehow. And so I, I, now apparently the, the studies that show you can have a wide amount of sodium and it's not that big of a deal. It's a wide amount within the American range, but not, if you actually go to zero, then there's huge health benefits. That's what I came across. I can't cite a source right now. People can look it up for themselves if they want. And so like the range that they're talking about is all high. If you go right. very high or slightly high, it doesn't make that much of a difference, I guess. Interesting. But if you go down to really to just not adding sodium, then you get major benefits. So I saw that and I thought, oh, I'll give this a shot. So I went a month without adding any salt to anything. And suddenly, I, you know, I, try, I thought, oh, okay, I'll try back again. I put in the same amount of salt I normally would have, and I couldn't eat it. It was so salty. Wow. Yeah. I felt a small version of that just this week. And I'll be interested to see a couple months from now whether that whether that holds true across the board. But it, I, I saw a piece of it already. And that's great. I would love to be naturally drawn only toward the healthy things. Right? I can tell you, eating fruit now, the sweetness is my sensation of sweetness from even an apple, which is like the least exciting fruit, is incredible. It's the least exciting fruit? Yeah. I mean, what fruit? If someone says apple or mango, which do you pick? I would pick an apple, but I don't love mangoes. Oh, okay. Well, I'd go for the mango. But now apples, I've really regained a love for apples because- what I love about them is that there's so many different kinds of apples right. and they all taste like that's how apples taste. Yeah. It's, they all taste different. And each one I eat, I'm like, that's an apple. It's weird. I don't know how to describe that. Anyway, so fruit, if someone, I constantly, when I'm eating fruit, especially now, peaches are just getting to get in season here. And I, I take a bite. I'm like, how can someone eat ice cream? How can someone eat candy? When is this? Peaches are amazing. And I didn't expect that to happen. And likewise with the oil. When I, I used to, I would just put oil in stuff. And then I just, when I made my famous no packaging vegetable stews, I used to put in, I just kind of take the olive oil, just pour some in, figuring like olive oil is healthy. And then I just put in a little less, a little less. And one day I just like, I didn't put any in. And I was like, fine. And I didn't intend for that to happen. I didn't intend to enjoy packaged, uh, unpackaged food more. I was just, it wasn't a goal of mine. It was just, I didn't think that I would love food so much. And now I'm sure I've talked to you about when I go to farmer's markets. I just can't, I can't leave it with whatever bag that I went there with. It's going to be full, completely full. Yeah, you're, you're all about the farmer's markets. I know that. Yeah, I wasn't. I mean, I had every meal of my life was probably packaged before that. Yeah, I, I really like farmer's markets as well. I, I think not maybe to the level that you do yet, but <laughs> I, do, I do enjoy a really good farmer's market and walking around and seeing the pieces. And I noticed too that the more, I grew up in the country and I noticed that the more that you're in the middle of it, the more that you capture the smells of it too. 
not oh, just the yeah. flavor, but the more you become sensitive to the smell of the fruit and then that triggers the flavor sensation and all of those, all of those pieces. And I look forward to more of that happening. I, I think I've let over the last number of years, I've allowed myself to be misguided, misled, drawn in by, and just captured by all of the fake plastic food and all of the different all of the different produced things and have gotten much further away from more natural foods and from the right levels of sodium and fats and things like that than I had really realized. I've told you about my word, right? Mm-hmm. Doof. Yes. I believe that this will change a lot for you because people who claim that they're addicted to food, they will say, and have, have I said this whole routine to you? Probably. They will say, stop me if it's boring you, but they will say those, like someone who wants to quit smoking or drinking or heroin, they can simply not take heroin, but we must eat food. And it's much more difficult for us because we have to have the food in front of us. Now, I can look at, I think anyone can look at broccoli and Doritos and see that there's something qualitatively different about these things. Yes. Just like people can look at beer and water. And there's no confusing. You can be very, very thirsty. And someone says, here, have some scotch. And it's a liquid <laughs> and it's got water in it. Right. But no one accidentally confuses. No one says, look, I'm trying to avoid alcohol and you're giving me water. And that's just like beer. We know that water is water, beer is beer, and they're not the same thing. And everything's non-alcoholic is different than everything that's alcoholic. So, and then when you read books like by former guests, Dr. Michael Greger or Dr. Joel Furman or uh, Marilyn Nessel, that they struggle in their books to, with the terms fast food, junk food, convenience food, because it has the word food in it. Right. And they're trying to avoid it. Even sometimes they'll say like Frankenfood, but that also has food in it. And the, our language is accidentally making people confuse Twinkies with apples. And so I tried to play around with different words to come up. To, how can we not have the word food in, in um, when we talk about junk food so that we don't confuse them? And for a while, I came up with different acronyms and people have come up with different acronyms. But then I came up with DOOF, which is food backward. And DOOF sounds like doofus. And people who have heard this and who are German say DOOF means stupid or something like that. And they're like, it works. <laughs> and so when you go in the supermarket and you walk in and usually the entrance, there's a bunch of produce there, although lots of DOOF there too. And almost the entire rest of the place is doof. When you categorize one thing as food and the other is doof, it alleviates a lot of this confusion. So you were eating, by my language, you were eating a lot of doof before. If you now look at, if you go in the supermarket and say, I'm going to get some food and I'm not going to get any doof, I believe it will make it easier. In the same way that you might say, I'm going to get a poppy seed muffin and I'm not going to get any heroin. <laughs> right. Even though I, poppy seeds is where the heroin comes from. You know, it's, it's interesting. As I started doing the cardiac diet, my selections immediately changed. Like immediately. When I started realizing I needed to stay under these numbers and I needed to look at this, well, what are my choices? Oh, wait, I need to have a lot of fruits and a lot of vegetables. I need to do more of that. And I've not been, I've not been the guy that's afraid of fruits and vegetables in the past, but I found every morning there I was eating apples and peanut butter instead of doof, right? Instead of mm -hmm. all the garbage, instead of cocoa, uh, cocoa pebbles, right? Or instead of grabbing some terribly unhealthy chip that I shouldn't have had. 
And I now I've been eating apples and peanut butter there. And in the evening, we're eating healthier things that are tray bakes that are filled that are filled with vegetables and chicken, and much much simpler, much more straightforward. And strangely enough, I have had far less, aside from all the heart issues, I've had far less physical symptoms. I've had far less lag and and like drowsiness and things like that. And I've had my stamina issues because I'm still recovering from some craziness, but I haven't felt foggy and crazy enough, my body already started readjusting its weight and what it wants to carry because I'm not putting as much garbage in it. I want to make sure that I ask you in the future if using the term doof helps because I think it will. I'm interested to see. I will intentionally start using that over the next, uh, over the next 30 days. Yeah, Dr. Joel Furman Instagrammed about it. I was very happy to see. And then Eric Adams, the Brooklyn Borough President, started using it. If you like the show, I recommend acting as my guests do. It works best with someone supportive, your spouse, parents, kids, neighbors, or friends. Learn the four-step process I do with my guests and describe in my TEDx talks and do it together. You'll find yourself acting on something you care about, something meaningful. Whether you start big or small doesn't matter. If you care, if it's meaningful, you'll keep doing it. You'll reach big. Eventually, stewardship will feel normal. You'll wish you had started earlier. Second, I recommend donating to help this podcast at joshuaspodek.com slash donate. I promote degrowth and stewardship, which no advertiser will touch, but brings joy, community, connection, and abundance to you when you act, and global change in the long run. Help us keep going. That's joshuaspodek.com slash donate. So let's talk environment, which we kind of have been. Yes. Or actually, wait, I don't want to get too personal, so stop me if it gets too personal. But can you tell me about the, how your relationship with your son has, has changed? I mean, you alluded to it. Yeah, I, I've I've had an incredible relationship with my son for a long time. He is the closest person on the planet to me, and he's he's my world in many ways. When I came home, the first thing that I wanted to do, the first thing that I needed to do, was go knock on his door and wake him up because he, like many teenagers, it was it was late morning and he was still asleep. And I woke him up and I just hugged him and I broke. I mean, I just honestly, I just sobbed. I was just so unbelievably happy to see him and to to get to to get to see him again was everything. And for the next 48 hours, <laughs> I was once I once I went through that, like I was I was kind of okay. I was still a little scared. I there's 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 a thing that most people that I've talked to that have been through heart scares, especially younger, tend to go through, which is that the first night I was home, I was terrified to go asleep to go to sleep because I thought that every time I woke up or rather, I thought that every time I went to sleep, I wouldn't wake up again. So that first night was really hard. But back to him, he for the first 48 hours that I was home, he was really never more than two feet from me. He, he like just wanted to keep a hand on me at all times and he was watching out for me. And it felt really strange because I don't, I don't want my son to have to be my protector. I don't want my son to have to be my caregiver. I don't, I, it, 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 but I, w- I was also incredibly moved. Uh, he, he like wouldn't leave the room unless his mom came in. He wouldn't even go to the bathroom unless she came in. He just made sure he was there. He did let me sleep the one night, but that was, that was it. And since then, I've just helped him to understand that, that I'm okay. It's going to be okay. I'm going to do the things that I'm supposed to do. And that if I can be an example to him, that my goal is that he never have to go through this that he never have to deal with this and that he take and learn from me what I did not learn from my stepfather and from my mother and 
get all of those lessons so that he can make healthier and better choices now instead of having, like we talked about before, right? Make them, make them now instead of having to make them in a drastic, painful way 30 years from now. And since then, he and I have, we've, we've had a number of talks about it. He's, he, he's made sure he's known every restriction that I have, that he's, he's known, oh, you can't lift over this and you're not carrying anything. And we've gone grocery shopping. You can sit in the car right now. <laughs> like, no, I can go in. I just can't carry the things. And, and he'll, he's carried all the stuff. He's done it all. He's just been super sweet. And I, man, I love my boy. But I also... I feel an obligation at this point to to show him that like look it's it's okay like you're you're a kid you need to be able to be a kid but you also can be responsible and look around and deal with the things that that you need to in the world that matter and he's historically been pretty good at that in in many ways maybe not with food I'd been a bad example for him for food guess what I was passing on as my legacy to him terrible decisions with food and he's now started making not as many drastic as I have, but he started definitely making much better decisions with food and he is being healthier. And I, I love, we, (laughs) our kids follow what we are, not we, not what we wish we were. And he is following what I am. And I, I strive to be something better because of that. Do you think your mom, had she survived, would have given you this, the advice and you didn't get it from her because she died? I don't know. My mother was a, sweet, amazing woman, one of the smartest people that I've ever met on the planet, but maybe maybe not as wise as she could have been in some areas. <laughs> and uh, and I don't know that she would have shared that. She wanted me to do well. She certainly wanted me to live long. But it's not advice that... I don't, I don't know that it's advice that would have really occurred to her because she didn't see it that way. And plus, she was... While she was eating some doof back then, 21 years ago, food in the US was so different. We didn't eat out very much at all. We didn't we weren't doing a lot of a lot of those things. Her issues came from a lot of other areas, being around a lot of smoke, being in some pretty unhealthy environments, certainly eating some things, having some diabetic issues. It was a lot of complicated factors. So I don't know that she would have had the clarity to give me that advice. Yeah, there's a lot more doof today than it was than ever. Oh, so much. What do you think about the doof industry? I think it's very profitable. (laughs) I think it's interesting to see the evolution. I think it's, I think it's heartbreaking that it, that it is particularly predatory upon those with lower income. I think that it, in, in many cases, and whether it be from marketing or from, or from actual cost, I think that it is, designed to grab every piece of profit and every piece of flash and make things look just like they should. And I th- and in those senses, it's heartbreaking. I do think it's interesting that you see more and more people looking for things that are real. Here's a simple example of something that isn't maybe great, but, but the attempt to make it better. Take soda. The what's the what's the number one rising trend in sodas today, like Coke or anything else? It's real sugar Coke. It is it, it is real sugar Sprite. It's the things that have the word real in it. And now you're starting to see that because people are starting to hunger for things that are real. Now, unfortunately, they're getting it in the middle of things that may not be super healthy, that may be better for them than the plastic versions. But so much of doof is plastic, and I have. 
I have a bunch of it in my house. Now I haven't eaten it in three weeks, but I have a bunch of it around me. I've, I've eaten plenty of plastic food in my life or doof as we will call it. You're saying that we think about those things. How do you feel? How does it, correct me if I'm wrong, but that's, you're eating doof is, uh, is a primary contributor to this life experience, this heart attack. Yeah. I think also think it's eating way too much of things that may not be that, but that are, that are maybe on the, on the border between. Or you eating too many carrots? You know, you eat fried food. Is all fried food doof? I, I might argue that it isn't. Well, you can fry in water, which I found out you can very well brown onions in, without any oil. Okay. But does that make it doof? Like, in other words, does, so would, you, would you say that anything that is fried, even if it's olive oil or whatever? Uh, so, yeah. So everyone's got a, like many definitions. There's edge cases for everything. And, and so for me, Crisco is, I, I think everybody would agree that Crisco is doof. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. And an avocado is not doof. Right. Uh, even though an avocado is high in fat. Sure. I would, for me, even the top level extra virgin olive oil is still doof because you know all the, uh, all the studies that show us the Mediterranean diet is healthy. That's despite the olive oil. Olive oil is more healthy than lard, but to me, it's doof. But I'm not gonna I'm not gonna have a problem with someone else calling it food. Especially I got an Italian friend and he's like, I was visiting him and he's like, Josh, you gotta try this. It's it's like flowers. It's so so much flavor right. in it. So. He's definitely, he's going to call this. And that was like a friend of his, you know, pulled it off of there. Yeah. And I would think of olive oil as food. I guess when I'm thinking of doof, I'm thinking of it as the unnatural stuff. Yeah. So to me, well, even before I came up with it, I made a rule. I didn't decide to avoid processed food. I, I wanted to make a very simple rule for myself because what is peeling a banana? Is that, is that processing it? I mean, one could, <laughs> you know, there's no hard and fast definition for processing. So right. I made a rule for myself. This is just me. This is arbitrary. Sure. Foods where fiber has been removed. I avoid foods where fiber has been removed. And at the time, I grandfathered in alcohol and olive oil. And then since then, olive oil, through no intent of my own, no, no conscious, deliberate intent, I just put in less and less and less until I didn't need it. And then I decided right. ah, that I no longer grandfathered in. Alcohol, I have a lot less of. I just don't have a whole lot of it. Sure. And that's really more a matter of at one side of a spectrum for me, there's alcohol. At the other side of the spectrum, there's chiseled abs. <laughs> and I go for the, I'm, I'm choosing the chiseled abs as something I prefer. I've seen the pictures. You got it. <laughs> yeah. So everyone can define their dividing line for themselves. I think most people would put Twinkies into doof. For sure. Count Chocula into doof. You know, most aisle, almost the entire supermarket is doof. That's the way it seems to me. I think there's a lot of it. Yeah. I, I think you'll find more of it. It's, it kind of dawns on you. Mm-hmm. I mean, to me, bottled water, nutritionally, probably not doof, but I haven't used a bottle for water in years, maybe a decade. Yeah. I would, I would argue for you that comes from a different place though. Yeah. That's it's not still, about it being doof. That's, that's about the environmental impact of it. Well, normally I think of doof. I see originally it was something that was salt, sugar, fat. If, if the main pleasure was coming from salt, sugar, fat, Added, added salt, sugar, fat, not something that was in it. So originally doof was if salt, sugar, fat was the main, added salt, sugar, fat was the main pleasure coming from it. Then I added in comfort and convenience because people get really addicted to that too. People just walk down the street and they're just like, I'm thirsty. And they just go in and buy a beverage. It's, It's the weirdest thing. 
when you get the perspective that, you know, you can wait five minutes and get it from the tap and not get the single serve container. So the convenience that there's somewhere, there was a, like a, a bunch of engineers and they're trying to figure out how can we get people to get this stuff? That's doof. I mean, farmers also want to get, get you the best stuff. Do you ever hear the story about Dan Barber, the guy with, um, he's, there's a restaurant not far from here called Blue Hill. And he's got this thing called, I think, Stone Barn, where he's doing a lot of like trying to get New York farms to grow grains that they haven't grown in a long, long time. So he goes to the restaurants to get, to use the grains. And he's trying to get this full back to the land stuff. And the story is that he went to a guy who's a, a, I might get some of the facts wrong. So look it up to get the, to get it more accurate. He goes to a guy to breed uh, butternut squashes. He wants to, okay. There's a guy who's used to crossbreeding or to breeding different fruits and vegetables. And mostly the industry goes to him and says, we want to make a tomato that can go from California to New York more, you know, more stably to survive that trip. Can you breed that? And so he breeds it for stability. For, for long truck rides, or maybe they want something that will have more protein in it, or maybe they want something that will bloom faster. So Dan Barber says, I want to make a butternut squash. Can you breed it to taste better? <laughs> and the guy says, no one has ever asked me to breed for flavor. It's terrifying. It's always for industrial profit some way. So that evolved into what I think it's called the honey nut squash. And to me, the butternut is plenty tasty. But anyway, so yeah, people don't breed for flavor. Which is, you would think, is the number one thing someone would want to breed for. I want, yeah. this to, I want this to taste amazing. I could see flavor. I could see health. Right. Consistency. So that was a rare thing. And but once you start going to the farmer's markets, then I remember people saying, oh, tomatoes out of season flown in from all over the place. They're not nearly as good. But when you get them in season, they're really good. And I was like, yeah, yeah, whatever. And then at some point it flipped. I, I wasn't trying for it to happen. And then I guess I had a tomato that was, you know, shipped in from California. And I was like, ah, what is this? I suspect that this change may happen to you because Doof is designed, the makers of Doof, including, I think, bottled water makers, they, they want you to think this is normal. They want you to think this is the way it's always been. They want you to think, and they want you to feel, I want more. After a while, I think it goes away. I don't know if it will with you. You've changed for different reasons than I have. I hope so. You know, when I when I traveled many years ago to Hawaii, I've hated I've hated pineapple all my life. That, and I actually, as I mentioned earlier, didn't love mango. I went to Hawaii, found it grown in the right place in the right way, and I loved pineapple and mango only that I had there, mm-hmm. and it tasted incredible. I recognize this tastes how it's meant to taste. And my hope is that over these next several months that I recognize that about a lot of different things. Mm -hmm. Tell me about nature. When you think about the environment, what do you think? Is the environment something that's important to you? I I mean, we've talked about it, but I don't think I've asked you that. Yeah, it it is. And it's become more important through our conversations. So yes, you have, you have slowly, your conversations with me have slowly worked much like erosion on the mountain. I would say that when we first started talking, the environment was something that was very casually important to me, but very rarely in the front of mind. And now as I go through my life and different decisions, I enjoy nature a little bit differently. I think 
differently. And, and even things that we've talked about factor into decisions that I may make. It, it hasn't changed everything in my life, but it's now much more at the forefront. And I do consider environmental issues when I'm making decisions or when I'm deciding what I'm going to do or whether to pick something up or whatever it may be. Well, what do you think about when you think about the environment, when you're acting, when it, when it influences your behavior? I think of the beauty of the environment. I think of, of being able to enjoy the planet and have it here to help us and keep us healthy and us doing our part to help it be healthy. So when you think, you said, do you think about the beauty of it? Do you have specific images that come to mind? I do. They're from different places that I, different places that I've traveled or, or even just places that I, that I go pretty locally. I love to be in the mountains and I love to be by the ocean or, or given that on the lake. And so I think of coastline. I think of being up in the mountains. And for some reason, I also get pictures of highways winding through places often in the mountains. And the last one makes me more sad because every time I drive through the mountains along the highways, I just see tons of garbage. And that, that does strike me and it makes me angry every time I see it. Yeah, we were talking about that a lot. On the, this trip up to Vermont was my longest time in a car in a long time. Like, I don't know how long it's been since I've been in, in a car for so long. And just the side of the road, I've never... I mean, I, I knew to expect litter, but the amount of litter was really high. I mean, Vermont was less than Massachusetts. Don't you just wonder, like, what in the world are people doing? Throwing <laughs> beer cans out the window of their cars, that's certainly, and Gatorade. Like, what, what makes people think to do that? I, I don't know in my entire life, even as a kid, that I've thrown stuff out my window. Yeah, I've thrown apple cores out, that's for yeah, sure. Yeah, like, something like that, sure. And so you get that feeling of anger when the, the roads aren't there. Where the litter's not there, how do you feel when it's just you and nature? Peaceful. I, I, I think nature is majestic. I'm pretty deeply impacted by nature, despite the fact that I spend a lot less time in it than I would, out, really out in the middle of it, than I would like. Are there specific mountains or ocean sides that you think of? I spent time in South Carolina, so I think of the ocean there. I re, but if I, if, I think of, if I think of ocean, I think of there there are really two, it's a, it's a direct comparison. I think of when I was in Hawaii and when I was in the Philippines. And when I was in Manila, it was incredibly sad because you can't get near the water in Manila and it's just, it's just horrible. And it's, it's, it's polluted around a city of 20 million people. Whereas in Hawaii, I was able to get in it. It was amazing. It was beautiful. It's really my favorite place on earth. Is, is from a natural beauty standpoint is Hawaii. So I think of that comparison. So I want to ask you, given what you described about the feelings that you get in Hawaii, is that mountains and shore or just shore? It has both. It has, it has mountains and, and ocean. That's one of the reasons I like it is it has all the things I like in a very small space. Those feelings that you get there and compare also the feelings that you get when you see litter by the side of the road in places like that. I invite you at your option to think of something that you could do to act on those feelings. Most people, when they hear this, they think I'm saying, what's the biggest thing you could do? Or what's the small thing you could, I'm not asking, it's not about the rest of the world. It's not saying what's something that the New York Times is a suggestion that you could do or Greenpeace said it. Something to act on what you care about. Those feelings of either the, the beauty, the feelings that the beauty conjures when there's no litter around, or there's no highways going through it, or the feelings of anger when it is there, or what other, other feelings are there, to act on those feelings. 
and with a couple constraints. It has mm-hmm. to be something you're not already doing, something that you do yourself. So you can tell other people to do stuff, but you also have to be doing at least part of it. And it has to have some measurable, it can't be just education or awareness. I mean, by all means, go for education awareness, but take the next step to behavior so that you don't have to measure the result, but it's in principle, you know, there's some physical difference that happens. And big or small, it doesn't matter. It could be very small, it could be very big, and it doesn't have to be for the rest of your life. It could be for, a, I mean, I'm going to ask you, if you take up the invitation, to share what the experience was like in the second episode of your game. Yeah, I'm game. I'm trying to come up with the thing. The, the first thing that came to my mind is, is picking up litter, but I actually do that already. So that's, that's kind of kicked out. Like when I walk through the park near my house, there are somewhat frequent litter, littering. So if I'm walking along and I see stuff, I will grab it and put it in the garbage. So that, that doesn't really count because <laughs> I'm already doing it. I'm trying to think of something that would be a really appropriate, appropriate fit because I'm totally game for it. Well, the only fit is if it allows you to act on motivation that's already there. Right. Yeah. So I guess the thing that, that connects with me then, there are two things that come to mind. One is when I'm around water, whether it be my father's at the lake or whether I'm at the ocean, I haven't been picking things up there. So I, I could certainly actively pick things up and go along and do it. But I don't know that I'm at the water often enough to, to make it a significant enough impact. There's no significant impact as long as it's not zero. Well, no, but it, but more of more of, meaning frequent enough impact. I guess maybe is a better way to put that. That that if it's a few times a year, it's not going to. I feel like it doesn't doesn't connect in the same way. Although I'm glad to, I'm certainly glad to commit to that. The other one is is is, and I I like to do things that I feel resistance to because that tells me I'm closer to the area that, <laughs> that I probably need to do something. Someone's been reading Stephen Pressfield. <laughs> I feel a pretty significant resistance to giving up my water bottles. So everyone can only hear the audio. So he, he reached over on the video and picked up the water bottle next to him and showed it to the camera. Yeah, yeah, right. Oh, and so water bottle, it's like, what, eight ounce, 12 ounces? Uh, 16. 16 ounces. So it's a single, roughly single. Yep. 16 ounce water bottles that I, that I go through probably three or four of a day. I have historically had frustrations trying to, when I, when I switched to tap water historically, I've just not drank water and not drank anything. And I drink purified water because spring water tastes terrible to me. So I'm, I'm a picky priss when it comes to it, which is a lot of what has led to me not doing it. But that tells me that I need to go back and for 30 days commit to not using or not not drinking from a water bottle and then I'm not putting and in 30 days is 30 days right hope maybe it's the start of the next year but making that change is it is something that has a measurable impact upon my life it's something that goes that goes right into my resistance which means it's probably good and it's something that a step earlier prevents the we would symbolically prevent the littering of other people because that's the type of stuff that gets thrown by the side of the road all the time so that sounds normally at this stage i would say smart goal i would make sure it is and it sounds to me specific measurable achievable realistic and time out yeah i'm a smart goal guy too so i'm with you yeah i heard earlier you said something about realistic and achievable and i was like that sounds like someone is thinking smart goal (laughs) and all right so would you be game for in I guess 30 days or so having a second conversation to record how to, to share how things went. 
Yeah, I, I would be totally game for that. I will go through the the remainder of what I already have in my possession, and then I will stop and not replenish any of it. So it'll be about a week of of what you of what you got. Yeah, because I already have it. Or, or I, I mean, I suppose I could just leave it sitting there. It doesn't matter. It's water. It'll last forever. But I was thinking if I stop and stop forever, then I'm done. I'll let you figure that out for yourself. I will sort that out. But yes, I'm, I, will, I will commit to doing that for 30 days. And I'm totally game to talk about it. Okay. And I guess it's the sort of thing, I, I don't know. Do you have to talk to your doctor about it? No, because I'll still drink water. I'll, I'll make myself drink water. It'll just be the water I don't, that I don't love as much. So I'm going to wrap up here. And ask if there is there anything I didn't think to ask that's worth bringing up or anything to add or anything to say to the listeners directly? I think that, I think this, I, I say frequently that people matter most and relationships are everything. And I think that the most important relationship that you've got to take care of first is with yourself. And that was the one that I wasn't tending in the right way that led to me, led me to where I was. So look at the, I, I'm certainly a big fan of focusing other on others and doing things that are there. But look at look at your own world and ask what small changes that you can make that will prevent the things that you know are coming that are bad, whether it be in your own life, such as a heart attack, or whether, as Josh talks about, it's in the environment that we can prevent and or or help or stop or whatever it may be to make a truly environmental impact. And Josh, I appreciate you you having me on. It's been uh, it's been fun to to walk through this and make the interconnected world from uh, from the heart attack I'm having to the heart attack the world's having. Well, Dan McPherson, thank you very much. Thank you. I mentioned after stopping recording how I thought his humor would help people listen. He said, "How else can you treat it?" I found that after facing life and death before, that he had led his life to where he is now living how he wants. That if you could change anything. He wouldn't change anything. This is what he wants to do. That tells me that anyone can do that at any time. Am I living how I would if I knew that I was going to die soon? I think so, but I haven't faced it. He has several times. That's an insight I rarely see. I don't know if I drew the analogy too bluntly or insensitively to his experience between knowing how to prevent a heart attack, not acting, and then facing it with one side of the analogy, with the other side of the analogy being our species and the planetary heart attack that we're fomenting. So was I too heavy-handed with it? Afterward, he said that he appreciated the chance to serve, that he liked that. So that told me not too much. But the big picture is that I hope that we learn his lesson without facing coin-tossed chances of surviving. I predict that he'll keep finding, as he sticks with them, that the dietary and lifestyle changes lead him to see that he could have changed earlier and that he wished he had. But we'll see you next time when he shares from his experience. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step-by-step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate. 